Hey girl, welcome to the latest episode of Girl.Live, a brew of chats just between us girls, mixed in with stories and experiences we've never told before. Baby, this that tea from Concentrate Heaney, a show where the juiciest conversations start with girl, it's fresh, it's raw, it is hilarious, bitch, this is Girl.Live. Hey girl, my name is Abraham and this is Girl. Live. I started diving into meditation about six years ago, more or less. As someone who was and is a firm believer in prayer, meditation was such a different world to me. As some people see prayer as a laundry list of grievances or a grocery list of things you need or want. Hey, some people listening right now would not know where to begin if asked to pray, and that's totally okay. Prayer to whoever your God or creator is, at its core, is more than just a monologue. It's a sublime dialogue. The beauty in it being a dialogue is the fact that when one prays, using our audible voice to confess, proclaim, and express, in those moments of quiet, if we allow our spirit and our consciousness to find alignment, alignment, and harmony within ourselves and transcend higher beyond who we are, the Creator speaks. You won't hear the voice of God with your ears in those moments of peace where our soul reaches out to the Creator, you'll feel His words in your heart. That's why prayer is a dialogue, a true conversation. This is why meditation was so difficult for me in the beginning. You see, I was used to the dialogue aspect of prayer where in meditation you just sit in a void of your own thoughts. And I just wasn't used to that. And when you dive deeper, you're left alone, eternally pouring your being out into the universe while simultaneously the universe begins to pour into you, realizing that the universe is in you, that I am the entire universe. Meditation led me to guided meditation and eventually transcendental meditation. A few months ago, while trying to find personal alignment and elevate my being, meditation brought me to the realization of something I was struggling with on a spiritual level. Relevance. And in this moment where I allowed my emotions to run wild and acknowledge voids I didn't know existed, I found myself face-to-face with the idea of relevance, my relevance. It was such a profound and resonating experience I couldn't even begin to explain to you that in that moment my consciousness began to connect the dots my subconscious had long ago discovered. This is a story of a man I once knew. I was born in 1990 in Houston, H-Town, hold it down, H-Town till I drown, home of Beyonce and Anna Nicole Smith, period. Um, Although I was born in Houston, my family actually lived in a tiny Texas town you've never heard of, Ozona, Texas. Ozona sits smack dad in the middle of Texas off of I-10 in the middle of nowhere, Just for relativity and context, I currently live in Spring, Texas, which is a suburb north of Houston, as many of you guys know. 
Springs population is approximately 60,000 people, which seems kind of large and small at the same time. Ozona has a population of less than 3,000. The story goes that a man by the name of E.M. Powell acquired a lot of acres in central West Texas that were paid to him by the state of Texas for work he had done for the state. He came out to see what what was his and found a tree, just a living oak tree, maybe insignificant and meaningless, but he decided to make something of it and seize the moment and pour himself into this land. And thus, Ozona grew up around this tree, which still stands. In the middle of what is Crockett County, 3,000 square miles of majestic, rugged, beautiful West Texas land, the one and only town within its boundaries is Ozona, which is known as the biggest little town in the world. And that, ladies and gentlemen, it is a little itty bitty town. This is where we lived, out in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by hills and mountains and grassland and deer. Many, 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 many deer. My young parents pastor the tiniest church imaginable there. On a typical Sunday, deep into a three-hour church service, you would find an older Hispanic lady sitting in the pew behind my mom. Her name was Sister Fela. Standing on the church pew, making direct eye contact with her, I could see the stern face she usually carried. Her hair in a bun, as she listened to my dad pour his heart out on the pulpit. A seemingly stern woman who inside was just a sweet old lady. And I say old, but in hindsight, she was probably just in her 50s and I was either three or four years old. I remember the car she drove, what I think may have been a Lincoln. I, have, I know nothing about cars, so don't ask me, but I think it was a Lincoln. Just picture this older Hispanic woman just whipping that big body car around town. And I know she was a th something in me told me that she was a thug. She had to have been a thug back in her day, for sure. She had tattoos on those hands she'd raised to praise God. At least that's all we could see with her being apostolic and all. I'd like to imagine she was some kind of Chola back in her day who made it to prison for slaying something. I don't know what she was slaying, but I know she was slaying something. Then, as I imagine, there in that cell, she found God. Not before getting some ink. When I would get too sleepy or fussy, she would point at me and curl her finger. I would crawl off the church bench and onto the floor next to my mom's feet. And in what can only be described as an army crawl, I'd roll under the bench to, to Sister Fela's aisle. This was a top secret mission. I'd peer up at her from the floor as she'd reach into her coin purse. And there in the middle of the pastor, AKA my dad's 30 hour preaching, she'd pull out a candy. This was our routine. I'd, labor, I'd later in life find out that she was actually always packing candy because she was in fact diabetic, which explains why she had the coolest black foam shoes. 
This was Sister Fella. And because of her, I understood the idea of transformation when a soul is touched by the hand of God. When a soul has an encounter with the Almighty. Because I could kind of understand that Sister Fella was not always Sister Fella. Maybe like in the Bible in Genesis 17 where God makes a covenant with Abram and changes his name to Abraham, maybe the world once knew her as a different person altogether. But life and divine destiny brought her to the feet of Christ, to this town, to this tiny church, to the pew behind my mom. And in some ironic way, I think all these years later, after giving her life to Christ and becoming an apostolic God-fearing woman, here she was, here, the sweet church lady with a stern look, slinging candy girl in the house of God. <laughs> she was dealing with baby, I was buying. She was literally my plug. She was my first plug, just kidding. She was my one and only plug. Um, <laughs> we would often visit Sister Fela, my parents, these young pastors, both 29 and 21 would visit her for prayer and Bible talks. And child, if you grew up in church, if you grew up in church, y'all know that parent that parents can talk. I mean, parents can talk. Like, girl, we just sat through a five-hour service. Why I still got stuff to talk about? It don't make no sense. Talks about Christ would usually spill over into lunch or even dinner. My older brother, who was about four or five, he's a year and four months older than me. Me and him would play in her living room. Often we would watch TV on her corduroy navy couch with uh, sepia pictures hanging from the walls. Premium quality old lady vibes, if you will. Sister Fela had a brother. She called him Chava. I don't quite remember too much about him or if he lived with her or not, but I know that he was always around. Even as a child, I remember having the thought of, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why doesn't he go to our church? If as apostolic Christians, my parents and the churchgoers were always saying that we had the quote unquote truth and that the world was lost and destined to damnation, if but for God and salvation and going to church, our tiny church, then why didn't Chava go to church? Why didn't he occupy the seat next to his sister on the pew behind my mom? Had he just like not gotten the salvation memo? I didn't know what he did for a living. I knew that my parents were pastors. For sure, my parents were pastors. I knew that Sister Fela collected a disability check because she would always t talk about receiving a check from the government. But her brother, this soft-spoken mystery of a man, we knew so little about him. I knew for sure that he wasn't a mechanic or a construction worker because his large hands had a softer quality to them as he wore silver and copper bracelets around his wrists. And only ever knowing this tiny town and my view of the world being so limited outside the church walls and church goers, he was the first man that I had ever seen that wore jewelry. Jewelry altogether was a sin. That's what we had been taught, and that's what I knew to be true. Seeing Chava wear jewelry was an oddity, and as a, as a curious child, I couldn't help but be mesmerized by the man who, by now, I had come to the conclusion 
was a sinner, which explained him not attending our church. This is what the Bible spoke about. I thought Chava was a sinner. And even as a three or four year old, I think I began to pity him, to feel sorry for him because I knew where his soul would end up one day for all of eternity. The more we came around, the more familiar Sister Fela became. She was quite the character, being loud and funny in the comfort of her own home. She would let us watch TV more, I will say this, more than my parents did. Her and her brother, Chava, argued a lot. I distinctively remember that. They argued a lot. And if you ask Sister Fela, she'd tell you that they argued como el perro y el gato, which is Spanish for the cat and the dog. And it was definitely sibling banter back and forth. I remember Chava would watch Walter Mercado, a show about a Latin fortune teller, Zodiac guru, if you will, who would tell you your horoscope. P.S. There's an entire documentary on Netflix. I hope it's still there. If you haven't seen it, watch it. It's amazing. I knew who Walter Mercado was because if he ever came out on TV, my parents would rush to turn off the TV or change the channel. But here, Chava would tune in religiously to this flamboyant, over-the-top character on TV. This man who wore gowns and had long hair, which also was a sin for a man to have long hair. The flamboyant man on TV in a gown with long hair wore jewelry also. And a part of me felt, felt for him too. This man in TV... Walter Mercado, because I knew that his soul would also end up in a lake of fire. When I sit back and contemplate the beauty and the art in how life comes to be, I'm truly taken aback. How often moments of what we think is insignificance hold so much, so much foreshadowing. Moments that evolve into building blocks and the makeup of who we become. And the beauty and splendor of life is that all of those small moments of otherwise insignificance hold so much value if you can only sit back and let life speak. If we can only sit alone in our consciousness and allow our soul to listen. I don't remember the specific day, and I think I may have, it may have been a series of events, but eventually I allowed my soul to listen. I remember sitting on that corduroy navy couch with my brother on many occasions as Chava watched his Walter Mercado or a novella on a reclining chair. And from the kitchen, Sister Fela would begin to argue with him every everyday brother and sister stuff, the regular sibling banter, just, you know, going at it for no reason. And eventually it would escalate to a more heated conversations I didn't quite fully understand and grasp. From the other room, she would chastise him and tell him that he needed to change. How he needed to give his life to the Lord. How Christ was coming for his people one day. And how on that day when the trumpets would sound, he would be left behind. The passion and the zealousness in her voice and the use of biblical scripture and Bible terms felt familiar to me. It all felt familiar. 
It's what I knew. It's what I was used to, even as a three or four year old apostolic child. But what church had not prepared me for, what I had not experienced in a church full of amens and hallelujahs and hand claps as the word of God exhorted and convicted churchgoers, I had not been prepared for this moment. Seeing Chava on the receiving end. This soft-spoken man who hardly spoke to me or my brother, seeing him argue with his sister until she spoke about God and the need for him to change his life. He would then turn to the TV to find escape. And what I felt from him was something that I could not begin to explain. How he sat there and took his sister's words. How he bit his tongue as her words convicted him. And the many times he would just sit idly looking forward at the TV, crying. Often wiping his tears so me and my brother couldn't see. This broke me. I knew Sister Fela was coming from a place of love. And I believed what she believed. But why did my heart break for him? I allowed my soul to listen to these moments. Moments that taught me empathy. Because even then I came to the realization that none of this seemed, for the lack of better words, fair. And it dawned on me that this man had gone out of his way to be in the foreground. I didn't know the extent of who he was, but I knew that somehow, some way, he wasn't accepted, at least by his sister. And maybe that lack of acceptance from his sister made him feel like he wouldn't be accepted in church, in our tiny church. And as a young boy, the idea that someone could be outcasted saddened me. My heart broke for this man. For this man I hardly knew. A man who hardly allowed himself to be known. A man always in the background. Always in a corner. A man too afraid to be seen. Fast forward to 2020. Here I was one night. In my room. Deep into transcendental meditation. Girl just floating in my room girl. My cat's just looking at me like. Girl you be doing too much. Like, girl get off the wall. <laughs> On this night, as I meditated, I allowed myself to journey deeper, deeper into an understanding of myself. I was faced with the fact that my being struggled with relevance. And in those moments, I remembered who Chava was. And my mind just went, boom, this is it. It all makes sense. You see, even before coming out, back when I started blogging and sharing my life at the age of 18, I knew then my fear was one day coming out and just having to go away and being forgotten. And my biggest fear when contemplating coming out was that I would be that one person that someone once knew. Like, 
hey, whatever happened to Abraham? Girl, do you remember Abraham? Like, what happened to him? That You know, that guy that was like a Sunday school teacher? Girl, he was a little pastor's kid. He sang. Whatever happened to him? And for someone to be like, oh, girl, you didn't know? Girl, he came out. See, that's all I ever knew as a young adult. People who came out and would go away. Which totally explains my fascination and what some of you may say is an, in an addiction to sharing my life, to seeing my life as content. And to be honest, it wasn't until I was an adult that I realized what made Chava so different. He was gay. And my fear was that one day I would turn into him. Someone's son or someone's brother always in the background afraid to be seen and afraid to be heard. So when you ask me why the endless content, that is why. Because I don't want to be forgotten. That little boy who sat on that couch and watched Chava cry in silence, holding back tears, his eyes fixed on the TV as he tried to hold back oceans of hurt. That man stayed with me and he's been in my subconscious for so long. That little pastor's kid grew up one day, grew up to be loud and out and proud. And I don't know what happened to Chava. And I often wonder if he stayed in that little town. To be honest, I think that he may have passed away by now. And all I'm left with are those short memories of who he was. But I think in order for me to be at peace and allow his memory that lives in me to be at peace, I would like to imagine that one day, be it late in life, he got off that couch. That one day he packed his bags and said goodbye to his sister and left Ozona. I would like to imagine that he made it to a city where he found himself. And I'd like to imagine that he created a chosen family who celebrated who he was. Hell, I'd like to imagine that he found love, true love. That he found himself. That he experienced happiness. Who knows, maybe he even got to meet Walter Mercado and got to wear all the jewelry that his heart desired. I don't know what became of him. Or how he ended his days. But I hope that he lived. I hope that he indulged in life and one day understood that he was wonderfully and beautifully made. I wonder what he would think if he saw me today. God, no, he would be gagging! <laughs> uh, little did he know that those moments on that couch changed my life. To him, it may have been insignificantly insignificant, just like that oak tree. But his vulnerable moments planted a seed that one day changed me. I'd like to imagine that, that at the end of his days, even in his last moments, he understood that God loved him. That the Almighty, who his sister so often preached to him about from the kitchen, that the Almighty loved him, even him. This is a story of a man I hardly knew, a man I became.
And the beautiful thing is that his story doesn't end with him. It lives on through me and now through you. Right there where you are now. Know that God loves you in the middle of your mess. In spite of the lack of love in your life, there is a creator who loves you, who truly loves you. If only you would allow him to speak, to let those moments of otherwise insignificance bring you peace. And like that oak tree, there's a world of endless possibilities waiting to grow around you and who you become.